Thanks everyone for being here today at FinTuck Unbound, Cato's Summit on Financial Regulation. I'm Peter Gettler. It's my honor to be the president of the Cato Institute. I know if my uh, grandfather, Joseph O'Neill, were here, he would be singularly unimpressed with me being president of the Cato Institute. He would tell me, pal, that's like being the corpse at an Irish funeral. You don't have to do much, but you're relatively essential to the proceedings. Today's event will cover some important topics on the cutting edge of both research and practice, and we look forward to hearing from some of the leading lights of the industry and scholarship in the field. A 2016 report commissioned by the British Treasury compared seven leading fintech hubs, the UK, California, New York City, Singapore, Germany, Australia, and Hong Kong. It ranked California first for capital and talent, ranked New York first for demand, but the UK placed first on government policy. Now that might be a relatively biased self-assessment from our friends in London, but it's probably not far off. And this makes plain one of the unfortunate realities of the financial industry. It's here in the United States where we have the demand, talent, and capital, but it's unlikely we have the most competitive government policies. As the information revolution permeates the industry, American regulations are stuck in the era of mimeographs and fax machines. Finance is going to be disrupted by new technology for the same reason we've already seen it in publishing. At its heart, this is an industry where pure information is the product. Disintermediation brings customers and providers closer, while disaggregation makes it more and more difficult for incumbents to maintain their dominance. We're already seeing this process at work in banking, capital markets, and most of all, in the exciting rise of crypto. The questions now are, can regulators keep up? Can policymakers accomplish their stated goal of protecting consumers without stifling innovation? And can we avoid substantial regulatory missteps that rob us of some bright elements of our future that even now we can't yet envision? In some ways, that's the same balancing act that financial regulators have always faced, but the disruption and dramatic potential upside brought by new technology has made these questions far more urgent and far more challenging. It's also worth remembering these changes matter most for those who have previously been excluded. It's lower-income families, startup entrepreneurs, and those in developing countries who most need access to steady, reliable, and trustworthy financial services. Regulatory policies adopted in first world financial hubs have real impact on people in developing countries who are hoping to be served by providers in the US, Europe, and Asia. If policies that limit access to capital don't hit large established firms nearly as hard as they do their mom and pop competitors or startups. The United States is one of the most developed financial markets can learn from late mover jurisdictions that have leapfrogged old analog technologies and move directly to newer digital platforms. For example, in Kenya and Tanzania, M-Pesa has enabled money transfers and payment services built around mobile phones and text messaging. It's been so successful that they've since expanded to Afghanistan, South Africa, India, Romania, and Albania. M-Pesa has facilitated cheap retail investment, attracting the interest of firms like Fidelity and J.P. Morgan. But it's also enabling something we still don't have in the United States, instantaneous on-time payments. Even compared to other developed countries, the United States still lags behind on payment processing times, with a system built around pre-internet, pre-startup methods and technologies. 
Because of the combination of new technology and dedicated efforts, the percentage of the world's population with access to mobile money or bank accounts has increased from about 50% to nearly 70% since the start of the decade. That means the world's poorest have access to some of the key tools they need to build a better life for themselves. It's part of why we could see within our lifetimes one of the greatest miracles in human history, the eradication of extreme poverty worldwide. And speaking of modern miracles, it's with cryptocurrencies that we see both the most potential and the biggest regulatory risks. Since their launch almost 10 years ago, the market cap of all cryptocurrencies has surged to at current prices nearly $200 billion. New markets have opened as the technology expands from currency into the world of tokens that function effectively as stocks. Regulators still aren't sure how to handle crypto because it defies categorization and breaks all the molds of traditional finance. Is it a currency, commodity, security, or as some regulators see it, a scam? The reality is that we've seen examples of all of these things. For all its successes, we've also seen some high-profile and costly failures. Nearly all of us at Cato want to limit government as much as possible. But at the core of our vision is a legitimate role of government to prevent the use of force and the use of fraud. Outside of traditional channels of finance and the rules that apply to them, crypto has brought new opportunities, but has also opened up new avenues for fraud. We need regulatory policies that protect consumers from bad actors, but we also need regulatory policies that allow room for the market to grow and develop. So those are just some of the questions we'll be exploring here today. We have quite the lineup of guests to offer their perspectives. And first off, we're really pleased to welcome our keynote speaker, Commissioner Hester Peirce of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Prior to joining the SEC, Hester served as director of the Financial Markets Working Group at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. While at Mercatus, her research explored how financial markets foster economic growth and prosperity, and how poorly designed regulations can hamper that goal. She also previously served as staff attorney at the SEC's counsel to Commissioner Paul Atkins and on the banking committee staff of Senator Richard Shelby. In 2016, President Obama nominated Hester to a seat on the SEC, but because of her principled stand against counterproductive regulations, she was stonewalled by Senate opposition and her nomination lapsed without a vote before the end of Obama's term. In 2017, President Trump repeated the nomination for a term expiring in 2020, and this time the Senate confirmed her in the job. In that role, she's brought a pro-markets, pro-innovation sensibility to an agency that needs it. This July, Hester issued a particularly noteworthy dissent against the SEC's refusal to approve a Bitcoin exchange-traded fund. As she put it in her tweet, summarizing her opinion, quote, apparently Bitcoin is not ripe enough, respectable enough, or regulated enough to be worthy of our markets. I dissent, unquote. That dissent won her many friends among crypto enthusiasts who for the first time felt they had a friend who understood them on the powerful regulatory body. In typical social media fashion, her Twitter follows expanded by a factor of 10, and they dubbed her Crypto Mom. <laughs> Hester is a principled regulator who values the rule of law, markets, and innovation. We would all benefit if more regulators took her diligent and thoughtful approach. It's my honor to welcome Hester Peirce, Comm Commissioner Hester Peirce, on behalf of the Cato Institute to today's conference, and please join me in doing so. Thank you. 
conference. I do have to start, of course, with a couple of disclaimers because I'm from the government. Um, so the views that I express today are my own. They don't necessarily reflect the views of the Securities and Exchange Commission or of my fellow commissioners. Indeed, with respect to the issue that Peter just mentioned, my disagreement with my colleagues is sufficiently public and pronounced that it may not even warrant a disclaimer. I speak of the dissent um, from the Bitcoin ETF rejection. Um, in response to my dissent, as Peter mentioned, I was dubbed crypto mom, and I've always wanted to be a mother, so this was really quite an honor for me. <laughs> Admittedly, this is not the type of motherhood that I had dreamt of and imagined, but one of the wonderful aspects of being a mother is that you never know quite what you're going to get, but it's always more wonderful, wonderful than you thought it would be. If I were a mother, I suspect that I would be a free-range mother uh, rather than a helicopter mom. A helicopter mother hovers over her child in order to ensure the child's success, although this strategy often backfires. Free-range mother, by contrast, raises a child in the spirit of encouraging her to function independently and with limited parental supervision, which includes a reasonable acceptance of realistic personal risks. Japanese television affords us a real-life example of this type of parenting. There's a show called My First Errand, in which children, some under the age of five, are sent off on their first errand by themselves. Episodes of the show are worth watching, not only for the inevitable laughter and tears they inspire, but also for the fact that they shed light that risk-taking is not inherently bad. To the contrary, Certain achievements are possible only if we take risks. It's often difficult for parents to realize this, particularly in affluent type A areas like Washington, D.C., and understandably so. Risks imply the possibility of harm, and most parents instinctively recoil from the possibility that their child will get hurt. But it's not just parents. We regulators, too, have trouble with that concept. This discomfort is understandable, and not just because we live in DC and bring our helicopter parenting skills to work. The downside for the regulator is real. When investor risk-taking leads to investor losses, regulators inevitably face criticism for allowing the investors to take the risks that in hindsight appear to have offered nothing but the downside. We know what inevitably follows, a chorus of critics insisting that if you, Ms. Regulator, had simply told people that they were not allowed to engage in this risky behavior, nobody would have gotten hurt. We know we will be blamed when something goes wrong, and this fear leads to the default suspicion of risk-taking and a regulatory mindset that too often presumes that innovations designed to provide greater access to risk Taking threat, uh, to risk-taking are, are threatening both to our own reputation and to investor safety. Better, we naturally think, not to allow the toddler, I mean the investor, to leave the house even for a quick trip down the street unless properly helmeted, swaddled in regulation, protective gear, and strapped into a vaguely European-type uh, car seat in the largest SUV that our um, incomes can afford. And then we convince ourselves that nothing can go wrong, at least until the little one starts driving herself, but that won't happen for another 30 years, so not, nothing to worry about right now. The problem with such an approach, of course, is that something will go wrong. Something always goes wrong. Companies fail, investors lose money, fraudsters cheat, nature strikes, and market downturns ha happen. 
But the losses of prohibiting risk-taking are also real. Even when we cannot readily measure them, or even because we cannot readily measure them, these losses are potentially very threatening to investor welfare. As a society, we readily recognize this reality in other areas. Take driving, for instance. Steering a speeding machine down the road is a very dangerous uh, and enormous, enormously complex cognitive exercise. But we do permit people to drive, even though it means people will be injured and people will die. Outlawing driving would save lives, but the cost in terms of the lost quality of life would be enormous and difficult to quantify. So instead of banning it entirely, we place reasonable restrictions on it. And some of us um, may decide that we're not even gonna, even gonna take advantage of the full, that we're, the full allowance that we're permitted. We might decide that we're not gonna drive at night, we might not drive in bad weather, um, but the, the chance the, to make that decision is ours, it's not the government's. It puzzles me that it's so difficult for those of us who regulate the securities markets to appreciate that capital markets are all about taking risk. The queasiness around risk-taking is particularly inapt for us. A key purpose of financial markets is to permit investors to take risks, commensurate with their own risk appetites and circumstances to, to earn returns on their investments. They commit their capital to projects with uncertain outcomes in the hope that there will be a return on their capital investment. The SEC, as a regulator of capital markets, should understand the connection between risk and return and resist the urge to coddle the American investor. Although, although hel helicopter parents convince themselves that they are helicoptering for the good of their children, such parenting sometimes serves the needs of the parents more than it does serve the needs of the kids. Similarly, the actions that we take at the SEC to protect the American investor may reflect a desire to reduce certain types of investor risk, but it may also reflect a desire to reduce our own reputational risk in the event of, of investor losses. But Congress did not ask us to guarantee that investors would never lose money, nor did Congress direct us to substitute our own in investment judgment for that of investors. And certainly, Congress has never suggested that avoiding or eliminating risk to the Commission should inform our approach to protecting investors. The SEC's statutory mandates are modest. We're directed to protect investors, facilitate capital formation, and maintain fair, orderly, and efficient markets. In my view, this threefold mission requires the Commission to ensure that investors have access to products and services that enable them to construct investment portfolios that meet their needs. Expanding investors' options and ensuring that they have the information they need to evaluate those options enables them to build better portfolios, portfolios that may both reduce risks and produce better returns. As the world becomes increasingly integrated, asset classes that were once uncorrelated grow more correlated. This shift creates an appetite for new asset classes that can help to diversify portfolios, and cryptocurrency may be one such asset class. As with all other products, investors need to exercise care and judgment in choosing whether and how to invest in crypto. Klepto crypto is a new way of stealing from investors, but investors can protect themselves by exercising an old-fashioned dose of skepticism. Currently, investors access cryptocurrencies primarily through direct purchases. Buying, holding, and selling cryptocurrencies, however, sometimes requires um, technical know-how. It carries with it record-keeping headaches and generally has to occur outside of one's other investment accounts. 
So this complexity means that only a very particular type of investor can pursue diversification opportunities that such assets provide. I won't attempt to characterize that type of investor, but I will tell you that it isn't me, despite the fact that I'm crypto mom. Entrepreneurs are developing new products through which people can access cryptocurrencies indirectly or hedge their cryptocurrency holdings. Bitcoin futures, for example, began to trade recently, and crypto-based securities, however, have not begun to trade in the United States, though not for want of entrepreneurial effort. It's clear that there's strong interest among investors for some investment product of this type, and innovators in the industry have made several attempts to respond to this interest. So far, the SEC has not shared the enthusiasm. To date, the SEC has stopped all such retail products from getting to market. To shift my metaphor a bit, the SEC helicopters in with good intentions, but often without sufficient concern for the way its regulatory blades roil the markets, frustrate innovation, and potentially expose investors to greater risks. Consider first the SEC's recent decision to deny an exchange's bid to list shares of the Winklevoss Bitcoin Trust. I dissented from the disapproval because it seemed to turn on the Commission's assessment of Bitcoin rather than on the exchange's plans for trading the exchange-traded product. The Commission's order included an assurance that disapproval does not rest on an evaluation of whether Bitcoin or blockchain technology more generally has utility or value as an innovation or an investment. The order, however, seems to do almost that. It focused on the alleged flaws with Bitcoin markets rather than on whether the exchange proposing to trade shares of the trust had taken steps to ensure the orderly trading of those shares. The focus on the lack of regulation of cryptocurrencies particularly troubled me. What authority do we have to require that assets underlying securities be regulated as if they were securities? Even if we had this authority, private markets can and do regulate themselves. The crypto community includes lots of people who are very willing to speak up, criticize one another, and bring to light technological corporate governance and other perceived weaknesses in their competitors' cryptocurrencies. So although not formal regulation, this kind of market discipline can be very valuable in identifying problems. And then in addition to this self-policing, there have been discussions about setting up a, a self-regulatory organization for virtual currency trading platforms. The commission should not default to a demand that crypto markets be subject to comprehensive government regulation as a precondition to allowing products linked to those markets to be traded in the markets that we regulate. This leads me to my second disclaimer. I'm a lawyer and now a regulator. That probably doesn't sound much like an innovator, and I'm not an innovator. I'm not a technologist. I'm not a trader. I certainly do not have the capacity to assess the likelihood that any cryptocurrency will have marketplace success, or more generally, the prospects of any innovation, financial or otherwise. I worry, however, that the Commission's focus on perceived weaknesses and vulnerabilities of Bitcoin imply that we do have this capacity. As I explained in my dissent, our approach creates the very real risk that investors might conclude, reasonably but inaccurately, that any exchange-traded product or ETF that we approve means that we have done the due diligence on the underlying asset and the markets in which it trades, and that the exchange-traded product or the underlying asset carries our imprimatur. Um, we never do the, the investor's analysis for her. Implying that we do does nothing to advance investor protection. The investor contemplating putting her money at risk needs to conduct her own due diligence. It's her money that's at risk. 
These issues will continue to arise as long as investor interest in cryptocurrencies persists, and that interest doesn't show any signs of fading. The Commission has before it more requests from exchanges seeking to trade products tied to Bitcoin or Bitcoin futures. Last month, the Commission staff, exercising delegated authority and apply, applying similar reasoning to that used in the Winklevoss order, uh, disapproved nine such products, all of them exchange-traded funds that were based on Bitcoin futures. The Commission is now reconsidering that decision. Meanwhile, just this week, the SEC suspended U.S. trading in two Swedish products tied to Bitcoin that were being quoted in the U.S. on OTC link. The SEC suspended trading because there was investor confusion about exactly what these products are. They were not being described consistently. Um, in reflecting on these rapidly developing series of events, just in the few months since I've taken office, I see at least five lessons for, the, for us at the SEC, and learning these lessons might make us more nimble in dealing with fintech innovations that are intended to create opportunities for investors to gain exposure in our markets. First, because most of us are regulators um, and we're not entrepreneurs or technologists, we should learn to respond, we should respond to attempts to bring innovative solutions into the financial markets with an appropriate degree of humility. We should avoid the temptation to supplant the market's product testing with our own. We will seldom be able to identify viable innovations with, cert with any certainty ex ante. And we should resist the temptation to treat uncertainty as a disqualifier. We should welcome the opportunity for investors to determine the value of these innovations for themselves in our regulated markets where they can benefit from transparency and rules against um, fraud and, and other types of rules that can help protect them. Second, and as investor interest in the Swedish cryptocurrency products demonstrates, our efforts to protect investors from the risks of innovative financial technologies are not likely to quell their desire for exposure to these technologies. Um, in my dissent, I noted the benefits of institutionalizing the Bitcoin market, and I continue to believe that um, the, the SEC will be faced with the choice. Either we let this, these cryptocurrencies thrive in our regulated markets or people will go elsewhere to, to other spaces that are further from our line of sight um, and, and they'll engage in, with cryptocurrencies in those forums. And I don't know that that's really what we want to have happen. We don't want to drive all the activity out of the U.S. Um, third, an essential step to encouraging innovations in our markets is to provide innovators with greater clarity and certainty in their interactions with the Commission and its staff. Innovators are often reluctant to ask for regulatory permission for fear of getting an adverse response. But even worse, perhaps, is getting no response at all or an unclear response. Certainty and predictability are important aspects of a pro-innovation environment. In the complex regulatory world we have constructed, Clarity definitely does not come easily. Frankly, sometimes our processes can be mystifying even to those who practice before us, much less to entrepreneurs who may realize only late in the game that they are working in a regulated space. For example, the recent announcement that the Commission would be reviewing the SEC's staff's decision with respect to the nine Bitcoin-related products um, introduced the crypto world to a nuance that many seasoned administrative law professors don't know anything about. Um, they don't spend any time thinking about it, which is that the agency's commissioners, not the staff, have the final say. And so while we've delegated some actions 
to the staff, um, one or more of the commissioners can decide to reconsider an action that the staff has taken by delegated authority. Although the structure does make legal and political sense, it may have better served the interests of clarity if the staff's decision um, had been replaced in this instance with um, a commission decision. Um, same thing with respect to the Swedish cryptocurrency decision. It would have been better if we had resolved any investor confusion before those products went to market rather than after. Um, fourth lesson is that our investor protection role needs to incorporate a commitment to expanding investor access to our financial markets, including through innovative technologies. Technology offers to financial markets some of the same benefits that it offers in other spheres. People with disabilities have reaped the benefits of uh, technologies such as better wheelchairs and 3D printable prosthetics. Many technological advances that are designed to um, address particular needs of, of people with disabilities, revolutionize access for everyone else too. So screen readers enable those with impaired vision to access the internet, but they also enable the rest of us to be read to while we're driving or cooking. Um, financial technology opens similar doors. The ability of investors to access their accounts from their cell phones has made investing more convenient. Financial firms are always looking for ways to improve the mobile experience so that investors actually want to spend time thinking about their investments. Online disclosure makes layered disclosures possible, which allows investors to dig deeper on areas that they're particularly interested in. Um, digital advice is improving access for investors that live in areas served by few financial professionals. And new technology is opening investment to people with little money to invest that may not be the sought-after group of clients that um, the bigger traditional financial firms are looking for. We want these people to invest in our markets, and FinTech makes it possible. FinTech offers benefits to small companies, too, um, for example, providing online platforms for raising capital. Technological change in the financial market space has the potential to be as revolutionary as it is in other aspects of our lives. Um, the fifth lesson is that although we regulators have very different roles from that of the technological innovators, we will play a role in just how revolutionary the change will be in the financial space. If we do not become more comfortable with risk, our helicoptering may be so burdensome that um, fintech innovations begin to lumber along at a regulatory pace, which is not what you want to have happen. Um, in addition, because the financial markets are so heavily regulated, a lot of firms' resources, including valuable coding and data analysis resources, go to meeting regulatory demands. Every rule carries with it an information technology commitment, which means that smart minds are unable to concentrate on customer-serving innovation. In addition to rules, regulatory demands for information also eat up information technology resources. Because innovation is crowded out by such regulatory investments, particularly at the smaller firms that often serve as incubators for this innovation, regulators really need to think about the, these costs as part of the decision to impose new rules or new data demands. Finally, existing rules combined with a strict liability approach to enforcement can scare firms away from innovating in our space. Um, for example, a number of retail financial services firms have exciting ideas about how to communicate with investors more effectively, but the SEC's rules are simply too inflexible to allow these ideas to be tested on investors, let alone to be introduced into the marketplace. One partial remedy to this last problem is to allow firms more flexibility to test new approaches. 
We have processes in place for firms to come in and get exemptive relief or something called a no action letter, which basically says the staff won't recommend an enforcement action if you do X, Y, and Z. Um, but these processes, as you might guess, they're very formal and so they take a very long time. And um, it's just, it's not gonna be something that firms will bother going through if they wanna try out a new disclosure format. Advocates of regulatory sandboxes hope that they are the answer, but I fear that these two might be, in this instance, too inflexible and slow to match the speed of innovating minds. We could instead explore ways to allow firms to self-certify that their fintech experiments are consistent with the spirit of regulatory obligations. Elsewhere, I've called for an Office of Innovation, but this is a Cato crowd, so I really hesitate to talk any more about that. Adding more bureaucracy is not what this crowd probably wants. Um, but there is an increasing awareness among financial regulators about the importance of making room for innovation. So I think there is some positive, there are some positive glimmers here. Um, we see the Department of Treasury issued a report um, this summer that focused on financial technology and innovation and recognized that, quote, innovations in financial technology expand access to services for underserved individuals or small businesses and improve the use, speed, and cost of such services. Other financial regulators, such as the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection, and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency are making concerted efforts to accommodate innovation. The technological revolution in the that the financial industry is experiencing is very exciting to me. Um, new asset classes like cryptocurrencies and new ways for financial companies to communicate with their investors are likely to make our world look very different 10 years ago than it did 10, year 10 years in the future than it did 10 years ago. Um, as a regulator and one who is not adept with new technology, humility, as I have noted, is very important. I don't know which technologies will succeed and which ones will fail. It's not my job to assess the relative merits of different products and services. Humility is also important as we think about how our attitudes and processes need to change to make the U.S. a comfortable home for the next generation of innovators. Thank you all for the chance to speak at the start of what looks to be a really fascinating conference. I always enjoy the vigorous de debate that Cato events foster, so I'm happy to take some questions now or stand down so you can get on with the debate. question there and then is there any all right you'll be the only question sorry with um, the tension of size of government and 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 impact of regulatory sciences to your point about certainty and protectability you talked about that uh, uh, the market may not be uh, interested in going to the regulator to get an opinion uh, because you know the all the things you mentioned, and the other conversations you mentioned about self-certified, which is one way that might allow the, a market test to happen pretty quickly. Uh, what do you think about a user fee concept? I, I, I don't hold the FDA up as a, as a shining example of what to hap could happen, but they have an opportunity uh, in industry to go and present and ask for opinions or get things done by giving a user fee so that the government doesn't necessarily have to foot the bill but the interaction and the dialogue uh, and, and the opinions can happen. Um, you know, it really isn't about how we get paid. Um, 
it's just, it's an institute, you know, I'm speaking from the perspective of the Securities and Exchange Commission. It isn't about that. It's about an attitude which is very risk averse, which I touched on. And so I think even if we had sort of a user paid system where you, you know, clearly the costs of considering these things are covered, you still have the worry that if something goes wrong, someone's going to blame me. And so I think we really need it more than changing the way that these things are funded, that, you know, getting answers are funded. We need to really have a paradigm shift in the way that we think about things as regulators, but also in the way that um, people talk about us as a regulator. So, you know, I'm all in favor of investors being able to make their own decisions, figure out what they want to invest in, what they don't want to invest in. But when it goes wrong, don't come crying to me and tell me that, hey, you should have told me this was a bad investment. So I think that's really a much more fundamental and important thing. Um, I think having, the, the way the SEC is funded now, although we, we are actually funded by industry fees, but we're still appropriated by Congress. And I think having congressional oversight of, our, of, of the way we spend money is quite important. Um, you know, I, I was nominated by the president and, and approved by the Senate, um, and so, so were my colleagues. But um, ultimately, the people with political accountability are, uh, is Congress, and they need to be able to oversee us. So I'm pretty committed to retaining a system in which they have um, leverage over us. Hi. Um, so I had a reason to go uh, to open a nonprofit, and I went to the bank and tried to get a bank account. And one of the questions as they were going through was, are you going to accept Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency as a donation? I made the mistake of saying yes. Denied. Wells Fargo says, we can't open a bank account then. I'll go back the next day, and I learn, and I said no. Uh, even though my understanding was it's perfectly legal to accept these. I'm sure that's one of the three felonies I committed that day. Um, if you could comment on, on that, why, who's driving the fact that I can't get a bank account? And then secondly, I made a bunch of uh, private investments, Reg D type of stuff. I just want to sell them now. I can, can I post them on a website, or do I have to become an exchange in that case? Uh, so to your question about bank regulators, um, I mean, it is the bank account opening is, is decided both by the institution and, and, you know, operating within its regulatory environment. Um, and so regulatory messages come from bank regulators, but I can't personally speak to whether that's a policy of the bank regulators. Um, I'm happy that I'm not a bank regulator. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it is part of our fragmented financial regulatory system, but I actually think it's a wonderful thing that our bank regulators are separate from our capital markets regulators because capital markets are fundamentally different than, um, than banks are. And, and when bank regulators get too involved in capital markets, they start trying to um, impose bank-like restrictions on capital markets. So I can't answer that question, I'm sorry. And then the second question I probably can't answer either because you probably need to talk to a lawyer. I'd need to know the specifics of um, how those offerings were made and, and um, the details of that, and so I probably can't get you an answer. Um, but that said, we do have a lot of restrictions on the ability of people to engage in secondary trading um, of, of investments. and. These are things that I'm open, if they're problems that you're experiencing and that you feel there, there are changes in our rules that would accommodate, um, you know, that would 
better accommodate your ability to exit investments, I'd, I'd be happy to hear about them. Would love to hear specific ideas. And I won't ask you about Bitcoin. Oh, are you trying to wrap it up? Lydia is telling me I'm not allowed to take any more questions. But I should note that anyone who has ideas about things that the agency can do, um, I, I welcome your reaching out. I would love to hear specific ideas about things that we can change. Um, my door is open. My phone is open. My email is open. So please don't hesitate to contact me. Thank you. Thank you.